As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Body of the People. On this episode, we have a conversation with Reza Aslan, the incredible author and commentator. We talk about religion and the role that religion plays in politics, in social justice, and in community. Religion isn't about God. That religion is first and foremost a matter of identity. And it's a matter of identity far more than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. When someone says, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian or I'm a Jew, they're not making a faith statement. They're making an identity statement. And we have the news as always. So it's me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam uh, talking about what's going on in the world. Extraordinarily high rates of lead toxicity is a source of ecological inequity by race and a pathway through which racial inequality literally gets into the body. And that in some communities, uh, they found rates of lead toxicity uh, in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods with prevalence rates topping 90%. Before we jump in, I've been thinking a lot about self-care recently. People use that term a lot. People ask me, like, what is my self-care and what do I do and how do I think about it? And I've not always had a, a good way internally that I've even been thinking about it. But what I've started to remember is that you can't pour from an empty cup. So I've tried to make sure that I build in moments of joy, that I'm reading more, that I'm trying to write more, and I'm being in places that are really challenging the way that I think about the world and also giving me more information. I think about political education is not just about information, but also about skills. And I'm trying to be better at being in places where I'm building skills about public speaking, about organizing, about being an activist, about understanding policy better, because you can't pour from an empty cup. Let's go. And now the news with me, Clint, the resident academic, Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's task force in 21st century policing, and Sam, your favorite data scientist. Here we go. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. And this is Duray at Duray, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. And Clint, I know you joke me from doing the I-I-I, but people, and you know this, so don't say I say this every time. I mean, I do say it every time, but it's true. People reach out to me being like, I, 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 and I'm like, ha, 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 ha. I keep meeting friends of the pod um, who are like, I met you, I met DeRay, I met Sam. I just have to meet I, I, I. And I'm like, yes, Clint is great. See, see, thank you, Brittany. Him. Thank you, Brittany, for co-signing oh, that this Lord. is not made up in my head. <laughs> I don't even know who I am anymore. We got to make you a shirt that says I, I, I. <laughs> <laughs> I will say is I have had great occasion, especially over the last few weeks, to meet um, friends of the pod. I feel like we have the best friends ever. Um, I, it still totally blows my mind that people actually want to tune in and listen to us when this is just kind of how we sit around and talk often. <laughs> um, but we're we're really humbled and thankful for that. I'm, I met a young woman named Maggie this weekend. I th- girl, Maggie, if I'm getting your name wrong, you know what I'm talking about at the organizing event in Charlotte. <laughs> um, it was, it, she was like very excited, loves the show, is excited for every Tuesday. Um, and it's just really a thrill to meet folks like that. And if you are a friend of the pod and happen to be in the D.C. area, um, on uh, February the 18th, we're doing our very first live show ever 
at Lincoln oh, Theater. Oh, oh, boop, boop, boop. Take it to ticketfly.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. We've got awesome guests. It's going to be great. Um, our friend Wesley Lowry will be coming, Pulitzer Prize winning writer of, from the Washington Post. Um, Clint is going to do some poems and not dad jokes, right? He can do both. Maybe some dad jokes thrown in with the poems. Yeah, it could be a poem with dad jokes in it. I, I want to help you be great, Clint. Brittany's trying to put me in a box. I'm not trying to put you in a box. I just... I'm trying to... We contain multitudes. <laughs> You're right. You you are large and contain multitudes. I just... I just... I believe in you, Clint. Do whatever you want. You're right. I appreciate I stand you. corrected. But y'all, the live show is going to be great. You should come through. It's going to be like... It's going to be like Hamilton times five um, million, <laughs> you know, Lynn manuel Miranda is going to be there. He won't be there, actually, but we'll be there. And all That's of us really together are like a little bit of Lynn manuel Miranda. Uh, February 18th, come through. It's going to be great. My plan for the live show is just to make faces like Blue Ivy did it last night at the Grammys the whole time. There was there was like the okay I'm over it face. There was the like we're not clapping right now, mom and dad face. There was the, yo that was so oh my gosh, funny. I just didn't know what a shaggy was face. Like there was just a lot going on. <laughs> the short little video of her telling Beyonce to like calm down, mom, is the best thing that I have yes. seen on the internet. She was like, oh, yeah. Shh, chill, chill. Between that and the snaps of Donald Glover's uh, background singers, it was the perfect show. And just Cardi B in general. All things Cardi B. Now we should do a whole podcast episode on how talented Donald Glover is because it's absurd. But I saw this meme with the Blue Ivy uh, telling her Beyonce to stop clapping. And it was like, it was like, y'all put all our business out in the streets and we didn't even come home with any awards. You need to calm down. And I was just like, that is too funny. That is too, I was like on the floor. I love it. I, I was there and um, at the Grammys and, you know, Beyonce didn't come at the beginning. So you can see Jay and like you see him and clearly sitting next to him is not Beyonce. And then all of a sudden, like there's a commercial break and like, and you don't even see her come in. You all the lights come back on and like there's Beyonce and her bodyguard is in a seat behind her. And you're like, I love it. I love it. Protect the queen. Like nobody else's bodyguard like has a seat at the Grammys, but hers. Can we talk about that humble brag? Dere just slid on in there. Oh, so I was at the Grammys last night at <laughs> She's like, I was there uh, <laughs> just at the Grammys. No, you know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just... right. Meanwhile. Um but Beyonce, I've I've assumed Beyonce was late because she was getting her hair. Beyonce? Braided. Did you just call her Beyonce? No, I said Beyonce. It's because Britney sees herself as part of Be- Beyonce. Right. right. Like Beyonce. Beyonce. When she wakes we're, up, we're, that's how she Beyonce. <laughs> she looks in the mirror and says, Beyonce. However, I said Beyonce. I would never disrespect the big queen bee. But my point is, I really think she was late f- because she got her hair braided, um, which black women know is an all-day affair. And, like, it takes as long as it takes. So, But it was gorgeous. By the way, folks, if you are not watching the State of the Union or hate watching the State of the Union, there are lots of great alternatives. Following the uh, the Democratic response from Congressman Kennedy, uh, Sam and I, among many other grassroots activists, will be featured on the People's State of the Union response. I'll be hosting. We've got folks from United We Dream, from um, disabled activist community, um, f- trans activists, and lots of folks in between. Um, and we're really trying to make sure that the voice of the the people is heard. So that will be streaming live on Now This News directly following the Democratic State of the Union response. So we hope y'all tune in and record your own videos. Tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, definitely tune in. I'll be doing uh, policing, criminal justice. So 
looking forward to it. That was a humble breakthrough. Brittany's hosting as she just so slyly slid in uh, the the now this thing. And Beyonce won't be there though. And Sam will be. be <laughs> and Let's Sam will this. be laying down the facts uh, around criminal justice. Watch them. I'll be watching them. Uh, hopefully, you know we'll have a new commentary for the pod next week. Boom. So it's so important to remember that just because the broader American consciousness can move on from things doesn't mean that the folks who are directly affected can. I think it's time to bring up Flint once again. Um, There have been reports as of late that there are improvements to the water uh, and that it is now on par with uh, federal standards for water, but it's still not drinkable. So let's do a quick timeline. In 2011, uh, el- elected and appointed officials decided to switch the water source in Flint, Michigan, to the Flint River, which is very polluted. They did this in order to save money. In 2014, we start seeing illnesses pop up. Since then, we've had 12 deaths uh, and many, many more children now growing up with lead poisoning because of that money-saving switch. In January 2017, Governor Snyder declared a state of emergency. Again, so illnesses start in 2014. The state of emergency isn't declared until 2017 at the beginning of the year. Uh, He also is responsible for appointing the officials who switched the water source in the first place. Uh, And it is, of course, due to citizen awareness and activism um, that caused him to, to declare the state of emergency at all. At the end of last year, in December 2017, there were two charges leveled against people for their role in the crisis. As of today, Flint has been without clean water for nearly 1,400 days. Um, And they still, as I said, cannot drink the water. So lead levels are federally acceptable, but the pipes haven't been changed out. And the Safe Water Act actually requires that both of those things happen. There are 20,000 pipes that need to be switched, and the city is hoping to complete the switch out of 6,000 of those by the end of the year. They're still going to need federal and state support to do it. Um, So obviously, this is completely unacceptable on many levels. uh, But we also should remember that this is not happening just in Flint. And we see environmental racism and classism present in many corners of America. According to Scientific American, they said Flint is no aberration. In fact, it doesn't even rank among the most dangerous lead hotspots in America. In all, Reuters found nearly 3,000 areas with recently recorded lead poisoning rates at least double those in Flint during the peak of that city's contamination crisis. And more than 1,100 of those communities had a rate of elevated blood tests of at least four times higher. So from Philly to Cleveland and pockets in Baltimore to the Missouri Lead Belt in South Bend, Indiana, we see the problem of poisonous water popping up everywhere, and we need to continue to shine a light on it. It's sort of mind-boggling to think about Uh, you know, the number one, the fact that there are so many different communities that have, that are impacted by lead poisoning, uh, even to a degree more than Flint. Um, And I think the second piece is thinking about the fact that number one, you know, they have to pull out 12, was it 12,000 pipes? 20,000, altogether 20,000. Wow. 20,000 pipes and replace them and just you know, that that in this entire period, you know, people have had to go to, you know, checkpoints, distribution points to get access to water. Um, and I think, you know, the question for that I have is, number one, why didn't those investments happen faster in Flint and before this got to a crisis? And number two, if we can identify the communities that also have lead poisoning, like what is the plan nationwide to actually address this in a way that can solve the problem and that doesn't lead to uh, us continuing to see these statistics year over year over year with no change. And to pull it back even further, uh, as Britt alluded to, you can't have an analysis of lead poisoning and how that happens in certain communities without 
having a, a larger conversation and doing the sort of, you know, stepping back and having a, a larger sense of how poverty shapes what this looks like. And so, you know, decades of government sanction discriminatory policies have burdened communities of color in ways that increase poverty, segregation, substandard housing. Uh, and today the black population is at the, the highest rate of poverty as compared to any other population at 24.1% as compared to the white population of 9.1%. Uh, one third of black children live below the poverty line and in high poverty areas, nine times the rate of white children who live in poverty. And, and obviously, you know, intuitively we can recognize that the risk of lead poisoning, uh, in those communities falls disproportionately on black and brown children. Uh, and black children are nearly three times more likely than white children to have elevated blood lead levels. Uh, and then this one study that was done by Rob Sampson and Alex Winter out of Harvard um, found that, it, quote, extraordinarily high rates of lead toxicity uh, is a source of ecological inequity by race and a pathway through which racial inequality literally gets into the body. And that in some communities, uh, they found rates of lead toxicity uh, in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods with prevalence rates topping 90%. Uh, and, and obviously, the implications of uh, lead poisoning uh, affect every facet of a young person's health. And thus, the effect, you know, there's also a lot of studies that are exploring the relationship to um, impulse control, which is tied to criminality. And, and so a lot of different issues, obviously, at play Um that are really concerning and are and reflect again a a state sanctioned lack of uh, consideration for communities that have been disproportionately impacted by this for decades and decades. Clint, I feel like I just got the entire lead poisoning one hundred and one lesson. Like you synthesized that down into like two minutes. Like I don't I don't need the whole class and the semester. Like I feel like this here was like all the facts and the data and the research. Uh, like I'm ready to go. And the only thing I'll add is that the ACLU filed a lawsuit a while ago, uh, along with a, a private law firm uh, suing Flint about uh, the impact of lead on kids. And testimony is actually continuing this week in the courts because federal uh, laws and disability laws require that the government provides adequate uh, educational resources to kids, but they don't do it with lead or they can't do it with lead unless the kids are actually identified. So uh, what the ACLU is contending is that uh, Michigan like has not actually done enough screenings to to figure out the scope. So they're asking uh, to force Michigan to do more screenings and more assessments in Flint to make sure that every single kid is getting the resources they need to move forward. So my piece of news is uh, it's actually two pronged. Number one, an update of what's going on in Florida uh, with the ballot initiative uh, to restore voting rights to 1.6 million people uh, with past felony convictions. That has now received uh, over 800,000 signatures uh, that have been verified by the state, meaning that it will, in fact, be included on the 2018 ballot uh, on November 6th that will give Floridians the chance to, to vote to, for the largest expansion of voting rights uh, in what must be since the, since the Voting Rights Act. So this is major. This is going to happen. Um, it's on the ballot. This is something that's going to take 60% of the vote uh, in order to pass because it's a constitutional amendment. And so this will need uh, pretty broad support. And so there'll be a, you know, there's obviously going to be some work needed to make sure that, uh, you know, the public writ large in Florida is supportive of this and is on board. And, and there are many organizations doing that work right now. Um, but I also wanted to bring in a study from Berkeley 
from uh, Guy Pedrick Hamilton Smith and Matt Vogel called The Violence of the Voiceless, The Impact of Felony Disenfranchisement on Recidivism. Uh, and what's interesting about this study is that they look at the, the relationship between recidivism, which is the likelihood of reoffending for people who get out of uh, prison uh, and felony disenfranchisement. And what they find is that people who are in states where they're permanently disenfranchised, permanently prevented from uh, having voting rights, uh, are 10% more likely uh, to reoffend than in states where they actually have their voting rights restored uh, once they return from prison, probation, and parole. And so this is interesting because when we hear this conversation about disenfranchisement, uh, oftentimes on the on the conservative side, the right wing, uh, there's this argument about crime and about um, you know whether or not people who uh, have made mistakes in the past are sort of worthy or deserving of having basic uh, human rights and the rights of citizenship. Uh, and the arguments that they often make is that disenfranchisement could be a deterrent somehow to, uh, you know, reoffending or to offending in the first place. And, you know, obviously, you know, this doesn't make sense on its face because, you know, people aren't thinking about, you know, their voting rights, um, you know, in that moment, uh, most likely. But number two, what's interesting is that when you look in the, at the data, uh, it actually shows that the opposite is true, that when we restore people's rights, when we help them integrate uh, back into society after returning from prison, that actually they are less likely to reoffend uh, by about 10%. Sam, I'm really glad you brought this up. And so first off, shout out to you and shout out to all the organizers uh, down in Florida who have been working on this for for months and months. I don't think people fully appreciate how huge of a deal it is to get this on the ballot. And obviously there's a lot more work to do moving forward. And 60% is a high number and there's going to be a lot of folks coming uh, for this initiative on the right, because they recognize the political implications of, you know, potentially millions more people who are more likely to vote for the Democratic Party, which could obviously shift the nature of the political landscape in a swing state. But more than that, it's just a testament to like local grassroots organizing in partnership with activists working in coalition. So that's a really huge deal. And and kudos to you and everybody else who's been working on this. Um, and I'm glad you brought up this point about recidivism. And the impact of enfranchisement on recidivism. I've been thinking about that a lot this week because there was a study that just came out uh, from Amanda Agin, I believe, and Michael Makowski. And it talks about the relationship between minimum wage increases and recidivism. Minimum wage is one of those things that can, uh, there's been a lot of studies done and people are thinking like, if you raise the minimum wage, the question is largely, will people then get less hours or will there be less jobs available because businesses don't have the the resources or will it's you know will it be a net benefit in terms of helping workers so it, the question is often is it a net positive in terms of hours versus wages or is it a net negative and sort of deficit but but something that people don't often consider is the impact that this has on recidivism and what this study found that's really interesting is that an 8% increase in minimum wage uh, which is the average increase over the time period that these researchers study corresponds with a 2% decrease in the probability that an individual returns to prison within 1 year uh, which is really remarkable. And, and people might, you know, I'm a social scientist, so this is like a statistically significant uh, increase. And people might hear 2% and be like, oh, that's not a lot. But if you consider the fact that 9 million people are released from jail every year, 2% of 9 million is 200,000 people, right? So this is not an insignificant phenomenon. And I think it really reorients the conversation about the the role of minimum wage beyond just like, 
wages and hours and, and thinking more broadly about a sort of more holistic impact on on people's well-being, including, uh, you know, folks who who are trying to prevent themselves from being um, sucked into the, the carceral state again. These are always the moments where our values will be called into question because the research that you just brought up, Clint, and the importance of the franchise, as you've talked about, Sam, um, matters deeply to us. But if keeping folks in jail will increase profits for the very same companies and conglomerates um, that feel they'll lose money by increasing the minimum wage or lose their political clout by allowing people to gain the right to vote, um, then I, I worry that we're not really going to see the change that the country deserves. And so it's going to be up to folks, everyday folks, and especially business leaders, to make the choice whether or not the government compels you to. So I have hope in people like Chris Summers, who's the owner of Pie Pizzeria, a great chain in St. Louis that has expanded to other cities, including D.C. Um, Missouri did not pass a minimum wage increase to a living wage, but he did in his restaurants. I'm also given a lot of hope by the activists and organizers in Florida who really made this happen. Uh, people like Desmond Mead, who himself is a returned citizen and who has led the charge on this fight. Um, there really is nothing that we can't do when we uh, decide to get together and really be about it. And so I'm hopeful uh, moving forward, but I always am a bit worried by how much our values come into, into question now. And uh, the people who... Uh, prioritize profits over people uh, will always make the same choice. I also think that, you know, this research that you brought, Clint, uh, the research on, that I presented on disenfranchisement, and this just adds to a huge body of literature that shows when we help support people who are returning citizens, people who are uh, at risk you know, of uh, potentially being impacted by crime, you know, that that actually reduces crime, right? And it's it's sort of straightforward. It's not rocket science. Like this is something that is well established that, you know, if we actually provide the community and social supports that people need, then we will reduce crime. And yet this is still sort of a controversial political point. This is something that is not widely agreed upon across political parties. Uh, and the question is why, right? It's not because of an absence of evidence to support one conclusion being better than the conclusion, for example, that you know Republicans tend to offer, which is that we need to be harsher in order to deter crime. That's sort of their argument, uh, which really doesn't stand up to the facts. And so I, you know, I wonder that you know, what is it that is so, that allows the sort of conservative talking point to have so much weight despite such a, an absence of evidence to support it? And how do we help dismantle that uh, when these perceptions are so powerful, even though they're not grounded in facts, uh, in data or in reality? Uh, Sam, that makes me think about how people have been fighting in the courts uh, about disenfranchisement, but voting isn't considered a, a right. So I didn't think about that. And also my news this week is that the Koch brothers are investing a whopping $400 million uh, in the midterm election cycle that includes $20 million for, uh, to push the tax plan. And like that much money is just so concentrated will be wild. I'm hopeful that we can figure out on the left how to combat the impact of that. You think about like how much money that can buy on like ads online. Like it's crazy. $400 million is so much money. Like to put that in context, the average U.S. house seat is won by about $1.5 million 
So a winning House seat usually costs about $1.5 million. A winning Senate seat costs about $10.6 million. So $400 million could buy every Senate seat that's up this midterm election is 34 Senate seats. It could buy 61% of the House. So like, this is so huge. This is, this is the game, right? And so how do we outmatch something like that, right? And this goes back to, you know, how do these ideas and ideologies become so prevalent despite not having any evidence behind them? Well, this is part of why, right? This is the amount of resources that are poured into selling those ideas. This is exactly what I mean. This is what happens when people put profit over people. And I'm not just worried about the campaign contributions, although I'm plenty worried about those. This plan to sell the tax plan is incredibly disturbing. And we should all know at this point that um, the tax plan is actually a tax scam. Um, There are large companies that are claiming raises like Walmart uh, that gave a nominal raise and then closed a bunch of Sam stores that they also own and laid off thousands of people. Research and the word of corporate executives themselves has shown over and over again that that corporate profits actually will not be shared with, with their employees on the front line in the form of higher wages. And I'm just curious, like, what do they plan to Because according to the CBO, the benefits are going to people making over $100,000. The poorest will be the worse off. And the CBO has also calculated that health insurance premiums would rise so high that 4 million Americans would lose their health insurance by 2019 and 13 million would lose their insurance by 2027. So I don't know how you sell something that terrible. I'm sure that they're going to find a way. And that's what I'm most scared about. And I'll just add that the Koch brothers have been doing like nefarious things their entire political and business lives. And, and it's not only the them, it's their father too, right? So Jane Mayer, who was a reporter for The New Yorker, who's been covering them for a long time. And her, I'm starting to read her book, uh, Dark Money, which is, I'm only a few pages in and it's like blowing my mind. Uh, but part of what she finds is that the father of Charles and David Koch uh, helped to construct a major oil refinery in Nazi Germany that was personally approved by Adolf Hitler, right? Like, so so this is, and this is not to say that the Kochs are Nazis, but it is worth noting where people and where families decide to invest their money and what things they decide to willingly have a part of their sort of financial portfolio and where their wealth comes from. And, and to what extent can we disentangle or not disentangle that from the things that they seek to perpetuate politically? And so, so again, this is like a, Four hundred million dollars is such an absurd <laughs> amount of money, uh, and it's like diff- really. I think I'm glad you brought those points up, Sam, about like how much money it takes to win a congressional seat because this is this these two people can singularly transform our politics in the most harmful way, and and we have to be mindful of it. If you ever, I mean, campaign finance reform, this is is what we need because this is absurd. The other thing too is remember that they're they're trying to what they're buying is uh, time to convince you. So what I'm reminded of is that like we have power that like the money is trying to be invested into convince you that these things are right, and we need to figure out how to combat that from a messaging and from an amplification standpoint. Uh, but they are pouring in a lot of resources because they realize Trump is like not a popular president for all the reasons that make sense because he's you know awful on every type of policy and ruining a lot of people's lives in a real way. And that's not hyperbole, but we still have a chance. So all is not lost. 400 million is a wild amount of money. And to think that like you could invest 400 million and like still have money left over. I think that's actually the crazy thing to me. Like, 
that to me is like cashing out all the money you have, but they're just like oh, 400 million. You're like, what? Yeah. And they probably make money out of all of this. You know, like the tax plan, like they probably invested something like that, several million dollars and probably made several billion out of it. Right. So the reality is like as an investment, like they're actually, this is a business for them, right? Like this is making them money. This isn't a cost. The 400 million might just be what they're getting back in their new tax returns. <laughs> right, right. <sighs> this is why people power matters. This is why we have to show up. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use made-in cookware. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Reza Aslan, the incredible author and commentator. Well, Reza, thanks so much for joining us today here on Pot Save the People. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now, you're from the Bay Area and you still live in California, right? Yeah, I was born in Iran, but I grew up mostly in the Bay Area. Have you ever lived on the East Coast? I only ask because I... um. I've never lived on the West Coast, and I don't know <laughs> yeah. what it's like for those people who always live in sunlight. I know, right? Uh, yeah, I lived in Boston for a couple of years, and then uh, lived in New York. Moved the family over to New York to, you know, for like a trial year, um, and we loved it. I mean, we were 
you know, just completely fell for it like everyone does. And then we decided, all right, we're going to we're going to make this permanent. So we came back to L.A. to basically pack up our stuff. And we were in L.A. for about 48 hours when suddenly we looked at each other and, and said, what the hell are we doing? Why? Why would we <laughs> leave this? Um, so, yeah, we're we're here. We're here pretty, pretty much permanently now. Now, we haven't talked much about religion or religious sort of issues on on the pod before, so I'm excited to have this conversation with you. You know, so much of your work has has been centered on our conception of God and and sort of what that looks like. What brought you to that work? Well, I think part of it had to do with my experiences of revolutionary Iran. You know, I mean, I I was seven years old when um, there was this massive popular revolution that threw out the, the government of the Shah and then eventually replaced it with um, the Khomeiniist Islamic Republic that exists now. And I think that even at that age, I was blown away by the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad. My family wasn't religious at all, really. I mean, we were culturally Muslim, the way that so many people are culturally religious. Um, but when we came to the United States, um, you know, at that point, we basically kind of scrubbed religion out of our lives completely, but it never left me. You know, I just always had this deep fascination with it. And also remember, this was like the 1980s. So it was the height of the Iran hostage crisis. So, you know, it was a, it was a bad time to be Muslim or Iranian in America, as opposed to now when it's awesome. Um <laughs> But back then, you know, there was just this constant, yeah, there was this constant like drumbeat of anger and hatred directed like, you know, at me, at this seven-year-old kid. And I think there was this combination of of everything that happened in Iran and everything that was happening in America that made me just absolutely fascinated with issues of, of identity and, and what it means to be a person, how people define themselves and the role that religion plays in that. Um, and, you know, I just kind of, it just, it just became something that was so fascinating to me. And then when I went to college and I started taking religion courses, it was all so easy because it was all stuff that I had been thinking about and, and, and doing and writing about anyway. Um, and so I just kind of made a career out of it. It's interesting that you talk about being drawn to this work because of politics in a certain way, or, or sort of, political strife in the government because I think about uh, God in this current moment and the civil rights movement was so heavily rooted in God and that led to this conversation about salvation and what it meant to win and in the way that people talked about moral courage and moral conviction yeah. and in this moment God is present in a in a different way not centered in the work and uh, the institutions of the church weren't the ones that sort of led the actions at the beginning. Love to know what you what you think about that and what you make of it, given your work. Well, I think you have to back up for a moment and realize that religion isn't about God. That religion is first and foremost a matter of identity. And it's a matter of identity far more than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. When someone says, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian or I'm a Jew, they're not making a faith statement. They're making an identity statement. In fact, oftentimes that statement 
uh, contradicts, you know, the things that they actually believe. Their belief system is often greatly at odds with, you know, the sort of mainstream or orthodox beliefs, the creed, if you will, of whatever religion they're um, adhering to. But what they really mean is, this is who I am. This is how I see myself. This is how I identify myself in an indeterminate world. And so as a as a factor of identity, as a marker of identity, um, religion it, it enwraps itself in those other identities. So you make a distinction between religion and politics. I see no distinction between the two. Politics is a form of identity. So is religion. They're intertwined. Uh, that's true with socioeconomic issues. It's true with race. It's true with ethnicity. It's true with sexual orientation and gender. All of these things are sort of they're like coils uh, in a rope, right? They're all different factors of an identity that tie together and make a person who they are. And so even going back to the civil rights movement, you're absolutely right in bringing up sort of the salvific issue of it. But let's be clear, you know, you had this kind of um, heterogeneous uh, collection of individuals that were banding together around some shared symbols. And those symbols were most definitely symbols that were being borrowed from the African-American Christian experience but ne- in, in the United States. But nevertheless, um, it was the language of religion that had the currency to bind these people together. You know, when you, when you look at the, the, the tremendous crowds that gathered um, in Washington – Right? Not everybody there was Christian. Not everybody there even believed in God. But everybody was there united by this profoundly spiritual message, this, this religious symbolism that gave them a kind of a, a, a unifying uh, symbol to, to rally around. And while it's true that that particular symbol isn't, you know, doesn't have the efficacy that it did you know, in the 60s, um, it's still there. You know, when we talk about justice and equality, when we talk about even the the values upon which this country were formed, God-given values, inalienable rights, um, we can't help but just kind of bleed into this sort of spiritualized language, even if we remove God from the equation. Uh, because that language is how we make sense of the world. It's how we understand ourselves and each other. Yeah, look, we could have a complicated socio-political conversation about the rights and responsibilities that each individual has under a social contract theory, but ain't nobody going to rally around that <laughs> that statement. Um, but that the dignity of, of human beings, the God-given rights of us individuals, the fact that we're all the same, you know, in God's eyes, if not, you know, in the eyes of the state, that's the kind of language that um, impassions people and, and unites them across gender and racial and even political boundaries. And that I still see that that language very much at play in um, – the, the move of resistance uh, that, that we're seeing engulf the United States. Now, I, I think I, I think I understand this idea of, um, of of religion not being about sort of the figure itself, like not just about Jesus, but about a, a deeper sort of identity. 
But I want to know, like, how, what do you make of, or I feel like the calls to moral courage today, like when I hear people, like even use that language about mm-hmm. we did a moral courage and we need to be morally convicted about these issues. It just feels like it falls differently, like it or lands differently from when I think about like how that same rhetoric just like lands in church set or like in, in overtly religious settings. Yeah. Like, what do you make of that? Or, or, or is there like a way that we... Or is there a way that we can talk about moral courage without needing the image of, of Christ or Allah or, or some religious figure for it to still have potency? Yeah, this is a really interesting point because what really is happening is that it's paralleling a larger spiritual movement that's taking place in the United States. So about 20 years ago, the people at the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life who have been mapping American you know, religiosity for decades now uh, had to actually invent a brand new category for Americans to start checking. So what Pew does is they send people, random people, it's like a census thing, you know, they send them this, this sheet of paper and it's got, you know, a dozen or so religious affiliations and each one has a box. And all your job is to do is just check the box that most clearly applies to you. Protestant, Buddhist, Mormon, Muslim, atheist is a box, agnostic is a box. And what they discovered was that more and more people began to return the sheet blank. Basically, what they were saying was none of these boxes apply to me. And so some genius at Pew decided that we need an extra box. And so they created a box called non-affiliated or nons as we just sort of have come to term them. In 2017, a quarter of all Americans chose the non-affiliated box. Is that more more than before? It's it's by far the fastest growing, uh, quote unquote, religious movement in America. I mean, it's unprecedented. This is a category that didn't exist a little more than a decade ago. And now it's a quarter of all Americans. Here's the more fascinating part among millennials. So anyone who's under 30 years old, nearly two thirds chose the non-affiliated box. Now, understand You could choose atheist if you want to. You could choose agnostic if you want to. But a quarter of all Americans and two-thirds of all millennials deliberately chose this other box to say, look, spirituality, faith, these issues still matter to me. But I refuse to belong to any one of these institutions any longer, that the problem is the institution itself. And I don't want to be identified with it anymore. But I don't want to say I'm an atheist. I don't want to say I'm agnostic. I just don't want any connection with the power structure that comes, the corrupted power structure that comes from religious identification. And if you know that as sort of the major trend in American spirituality, then what you're saying makes perfect sense. Because in the 60s, that was not the case. In the 60s, if you were if you had spiritual leanings right you belonged to a church you associated with an identity um and so when a powerful movement for civil rights was needed of course it was a church based movement now you you're looking at 2017 2018 and what you have is a different spiritual landscape you have people who are saying that yes i believe that 
that these are not just sort of political issues, that the that the moral foundation that you're talking about has much more to do than just um, you know, the civil rights that are guaranteed in a social contract that I have with the state, that there's something deeper, more profound that's happening here. But at the same time, I'm not going to link that emotion to any institution. I'm not going to allow any church or mosque or synagogue to define top down what this movement means. Right, the organizational structure isn't happening among a bunch of pastors and sitting inside of a church. The organizational structure has been diffused, and it's on the street level. That's that parallels what's happening in American religiosity in general. That's interesting. You know, I do um, this notion of how do we have the values not linked to an institution mm-hmm. makes sense that you just talk about. I don't know if I've seen great examples of that though. Like that still resonate. I think what you said makes sense to me. And I, and then like hearing you say it like that, I'm like, okay, I get it. That makes sense. Do you think that there are like strong examples where it lands, like where we can, where like the call for moral conviction or courage, for instance, devoid of the legitimacy of an institution that like gives those values life, like rhetorically at least, do you do you know any good examples where that actually lands? Well, look, I mean, from just the sociopolitical spectrum, the best example that I can think of is actually the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, if you're talking about a, a group that comes from the ground up, right, whose organization is diverse and dispersed um, and which, you know, at least uh, organizationally eschews the traditional institutions that have spent decades and decades accumulating the kind of legitimacy and authority um, to sort of act as spokespersons for the civil rights movement. And I think that alone, you know, from a from somebody who studies, you know, religious m- movements, I look at that not from its, you know, the social standpoint of it, but I look at that and say, that is a parallel structure to what is happening everywhere else in the world. I mean, think about the 2011 – by the way, this is a global movement. I know we're talking about America right now, but think about the so-called Arab Spring movement, right? It, it, the, the sort of opposition to the uh, long-running oppressive dictatorships uh, in the Arab world – has for the last 50, 60 years rested almost wholly in the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood, an institution that's diverse and, and you know, large, but nevertheless an institution that because of the years and years of legitimacy as an uh, opposition that it accumulated basically became sort of the spokespersons for the anti-authoritarian uh, movement. What was astonishing about the Arab Spring is it completely left uh, the Muslim Brotherhood behind. It was it had nothing to do with the Muslim Brotherhood. It was young people who basically at a grassroots movement decided to take the opposition into their own hands. Their argument was no institution, no institution at all, neither the state nor the Brotherhood. Um, and it was, you know, Regardless of you know what the end outcome was, it was an enormously impactful movement. Um, so, uh, 
for me, this is a this is a fascinating global issue that's happening. That this anti institutionalism, this radical individualism, um, that I think has sparked so much of this renewed rights movement in the United States is a global phenomenon. I see it everywhere. No, that that makes sense, and I and I agree with you about the spread of. Of, of Black Lives Matter, and I think about the the protests in Ferguson, that there is no movement without those protests. And and you're right that those protests we say all the time weren't organized by an institution. I remember when we were all on the street that it was really like just people coming together, making it happen. I would, I would say though, like I don't, we never made sort of morally like we weren't asking people from I, I guess I, I don't know I'm like trying to I'm thinking about it in real time like I don't know if we were asking people to be morally cur- courageous yeah. as much as we were like this the structure's flawed right and like we aren't safe being silent and like we might not be safe standing out here in the street either but like we'll take our risks and like we wanted people to join us in their work I think that in hindsight perhaps it was a call for moral courage but we definitely weren't using we were that wasn't the language that we were using yeah. then, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm curious I'm curious about this question for you though. I mean, it's that how do you maintain this movement when it's no longer on the streets, right? When it's not um specifically reacting to what is unquestionably an existential crisis that's unfolding before your very eyes. And then instead it becomes something that you have to have conference calls about and something that you you put together at a table all of a sudden and suddenly now it has branches and and it has to have some kind of um larger um you know mission statement it has to draw in now a much larger much more heterogeneous group um that is united by a common cause and look certainly in some ways that common cause has been helped by having, you know, this very clear um, opposition in the Trump administration. But beyond that, you know, what do you what do you use? What symbols do you use? What rallying cry do you use to create a large enough umbrella to bring <clears throat> the stakeholders and the allies together? You know, I I always say that we because this is just kind of how our minds work and we're we're spiritual people and certainly in this in the, in the United States what one of the most religious countries in the world certainly the most religious country in the developed world um we tend to very easily fall back on quote unquote religious language right even when we don't realize we're doing it right even when we when we start talking about issues of you know like like you and I have been talking about this moral obligation do you have well what do you mean by those morals where do those morals come from again are they about an agreement that you have with the bureaucratic state or is it something deeper than that is it something um you know well more spiritual than that is it a a higher obligation that that we have to our fellow human beings um, whose source you don't have to call the source God, but you can call the source that something far more fundamental than just simply, um, you know, the laws that you know a bunch of white people in Congress pass, right? So, 
I, I, I'm curious, you know, it's again, we, we, you know, what's fun about this is we're having a conversation about something that's unfolding before our very eyes. And so maybe what we need is another generation or so to come back here and tell us what we just did, um, the way that we're doing with the civil rights movement in the 60s. But to me, it's it's all really fascinating to watch the the language and the rhetoric and the symbols uh, uh, create this brand new collective identity. Yeah, no, that is, uh, I think you're right. And, I, and I'm still thinking about that too. I think that, you know, we've not seen a lot of the movements that were born of the beautiful collectivism and social media uh, sort of last, right? Yeah. Like yeah. we've seen the energy sort of ebb and flow. And and I, I think, I mean, this is what I want to talk to you. I think all the time about like, what does it, so many of the things that lasted for a long time had a institutions, they were born out of institutions, right? You think about the civil rights movement was like, Churches and schools provided the backing, like they provided the sort of hard, uh, like tactical backing. Um, but I wanted, to, you know, moving on from that, you know, I taught a, a course at the Yale Divinity School uh, to open up this new program that they had, and it was all Yale Divinity students. And uh, the last a part of the class, the second class, um, I put a prompt on the board that I want to know what you think about. And so all the students walked in, and the prompt said, uh, "Jesus was a protester," <laughs> and uh, we all, we had like an hour long discussion about that before we moved on to the next thing, and I wanted to know what you thought about that. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I wrote a book about this. If Jesus were alive today, he would have been shot a long time ago. I don't think that even those who view Jesus, you know, as a as a social reformer, truly understand the nature, the radical nature of that social reform. Let's understand for a moment real quick who Jesus actually was. And I'm talking about the Jesus of history, not the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith is an accumulation of generation after generation of theological reflection of who the Jesus of history, uh, not who the Jesus of history was, but what the Jesus of history was. But the Jesus of history, the man who lived in first century Palestine was a Poor, and let me just stop for a moment and zero in on what I mean by poor, because again, I don't think people get what that really means. Jesus, according to the Gospels, was a tecton. Tecton is a Greek word that unfortunately has been translated in English as carpenter. Tecton does not mean carpenter at all. Uh, carpenter, you know, brings up these images of some kind of, you know, middle class business owner who really hates taxes. That's not what Jesus was. Tecton means day laborer. A tecton was someone who would basically go village to village looking for any kind of building work to do. If you want to know what Jesus did for a living, go to Home Depot and watch the 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 uh, illegal immigrants standing on the street waiting for a truck to come by and take them to a job. That was Jesus. His his a profession was so low on the social ladder in first century Palestine that the Romans actually used the word tecton as a swear word. Okay, let me just say that one more time. Jesus's job was a swear word in, in, you know, among the Romans. So we're talking the poorest of the poor, a man 
who had literally no education, didn't go to school for a day in his life. There's never been a single school that's ever been uncovered in um, the village of Nazareth, who was unquestionably illiterate, like 98% of his fellow Jews were, um, who was a marginalized peasant from the backwoods of Galilee, a country bumpkin, who lived in a village so small that it literally never showed up on a single map uh, of any map of first century Palestine, a, a village of mud and brick homes. And yet, and yet, using only his charisma, only the power of his teachings, launched a movement, a radical movement on behalf of the poor, the marginalized, basically people like him, a, a movement whose fundamental premise was not the equality of all human beings. That is not what Jesus preached. Jesus didn't say that everyone should be the same. Jesus said that the poor and the rich should switch places, that those on the top and those on the bottom should switch places. Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours, but woe to you who are rich because you will receive your deserts. Woe to you who are laughing now because you will mourn. Woe to you who are fed because you will be hungry. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is revolutionary. He is talking about the fundamental reversal of the social order in which the rich and the poor will switch places. There is no, there is nobody that I know of, no activist in America who is making that argument at all. And that argument was such a threat to the most powerful empire the world had ever known that they hunted down this illiterate peasant from the backwoods of Galilee, arrested him, tortured him, and executed him for the crime of treason. There is no way that that man would last five minutes in America right now. Leftists would flee from Jesus. So not only was he a protester, he was the protester, the most extreme, radical protester that you could possibly imagine. And the way in which Jesus has become basically, you know, uh, just sort of whitewashed, you know, by by rich, white, uh, Republican evangelicals, transformed, as I say, into this kind of, you know— middle-class businessmen who who really wants, you know, small government and low taxes is an abomination. It, it stands against everything that Jesus preached for. I, I didn't know that there was like no school in Nazareth, you know? Um, no school in Nazareth, no school, no public bath. Um, you know, people of Jesus's socioeconomic status did not go to school, did not receive an education. Literacy was something only for the priests, the Sadducees, the the scribes, um, you know, the the Pharisees, they're the only ones who ever received any kind of education at all. But again, it's just, it's it's so amazing to me. You know, we're talking about symbols, right? That religion is really just about symbol making. And it's amazing to me that, you know, you have these sort of wealthy right-wing, you know, white evangelical Trump supporters who have turned Jesus into you know, somebody who hates refugees, um, because that's a symbol that they can rally around. But honestly, like, you know, we're talking about a, a sort of specific lack of symbols for 
um, the new protest movement. I get it. I get that Jesus comes with an enormous amount of baggage, but I can't imagine a better symbol um, for the clamoring for the basic human rights and privileges of all people regardless of their color or their ethnicity or their creed than Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is the man that I have basically, I don't, again, Jesus the man, not Jesus the Christ, that I have basically um, modeled my entire life after. Um, And I, I think for a lot of people, who Jesus truly was makes them very uncomfortable. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. A lot of people around the country didn't see this protest, but in St. Louis, it was huge. You know, we were in the street for 400 days. People remember the initial protest in Ferguson is like 40 days or 20 days or a weekend. And yeah. it was so much more than that. But uh, these two incredible organizers organized uh, Black Church, so we went around, it was probably 15 of us. We went around to uh, one synagogue and, and I think three or four churches in St. Louis. And we stood outside with posters that said, um, Mike Brown was the least of these. Huh. And he just was a protester and, yeah. um, and a host of other signs and just hummed Wade in the Water, like before service started, right? It's sort of a, a, a call. And a challenge to the church is like, where are you, right? Like Jesus would have been out here with us. Yep. And it was sort of wild because uh, the synagogue called the police on us. <laughs> One church called the police on us. Uh, another church moved, all, one of the biggest churches in St. Louis moved all of the like church vans to block us. And then they got all the male deacons to come out and stand in front of us. 
And then this one church, like the pastor came outside and still with us, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was such a, an incredible reminder of how, for us at that moment, I'd love to hear what you think, but it was, it was, a, it was really potent for us because it, all these people talked about, like, they believe in justice and they believe in the protesters. And we're like, we didn't kill anybody, right? Like, I didn't kill anybody. We're only in the street because the police have killed so many people. And like you called the police on us. It was like a wild thing to watch in real time and to be a part of, you know? Well, I think what you're talking about connects perfectly what we had said earlier about sort of the the breakup of institutionalized religion in the United States. So, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of work has been done by scholars and sociologists about why the rise of the non-affiliated. And the the sort of consensus is that part of what happened in America is in the um, 90s especially, the marriage of evangelical Christianity and the Republican right, the creation of the so-called moral majority and, and the Family Research Council and all of that stuff, and the climax of that during the George W. Bush years actually began to turn away – a large swath of younger white evangelicals who were disgusted by the fact that their faith was now being used to promote a, a, a political brand that was often in direct contract, uh, contrast with you know their sort of basic teachings of religion. And religion itself started to become devalued in the public space. And so there is a very clear one-to-one correlation between the sort of the rise of the non-affiliated anti-institutional spirituality and the overt politicizing of um, religion. What we're seeing now in the Trump era is that sort of slow burn suddenly just catch fire and explode. Um, and there's an enormous amount of hand-wringing that's, that's taking place right now, uh, particularly among Christian uh, communities in the United States, evangelical communities, which make up, of course, a third of all Americans. A third of all Americans are evangelical Christianity. What is evangelical? What is – like how would you describe you? I feel like people use the word a lot and a lot of people are like don't really know yeah. what evangelical is. How what, And what's – what, if you're not evangelical, then what are you? Sure. So there's what we would call mainstream Protestantism, which is, you know, sort of um, sects that you would you like the Methodists, for instance, or Presbyterians or um, Episcopalians or, you know, those, those kinds of groups. American evangelical Christianity, which started really at the end of the 19th century here, um, is predicated on this conception of being born again, right? The idea is that um, merely sort of uh, believing in Jesus, going to church, being a good person, that that's not enough, that what is required is a rebirth in Christ. Now, after that idea, um, it, it you know, there's a no, an enormous amount of diversity, but other ish, other sort of uh, ideas that many evangelicals hold in common are, for instance, things like the inerrancy and literalness of Scripture, 
right? That that the Bible is God breathed, therefore it is not to be read figuratively. It's meant to be read literally, and that it's it's inerrant in every way. And again, there are some diverse you know ways of expressing that that view. Um, but this notion of um, a sort of um, you know, uh, impassioned, apocalyptic, um, salvific uh, uh, relationship with Jesus is basically the the prevailing you know idea behind what we would refer to as American evangelicalism. And again, going back to you know Pew, roughly a third, roughly a third of all Americans, anywhere between one hundred and one hundred and fifty million of us um, call themselves evangelical Christians. And there is a crisis in that community right now. And that crisis has a large part to do with what you're talking about. It it begins with this one unfathomable fact, which is that 81% of, of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That's a record. That's more white evangelicals than voted for George W. Bush, who was a white evangelical. Um, We have been trying to understand that phenomenon for over a year now. Uh, I've written a lot about this, about sort of the many, many reasons for it. But one of the main reasons for it that we just, for some reason, conveniently gloss over is the white part. We keep talking about evangelical support for Trump and forgetting to remember that, no, 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 it's white evangelical support for Trump. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. These are evangelicals who believe the same thing, who have the same theology. All the stuff that I explained to you about you know, what evangelicals believe, they believe it. They just have a different skin tone. And that skin tone changed everything. And there is a reckoning now that's taking place, you know, post Charlottesville, post Stormy Daniels. You know, the, the fact that evangelicals, white evangelical support for Trump has yet to waver in any meaningful way, despite the fact that, you know, his support in almost every other category has collapsed. A, a number of evangelicals are having to sort of figure out what the hell is happening and having to really confront the deep-seated racism that exists at the heart of this movement. And I just have a feeling like 20, 30 years from now, we're going to be talking about the the story that you just told about going to those churches and finding, you know, sanctuary in only one of them. Uh, it, it, that that story is going to be pivotal in the sort of the breakup and the redefining of American evangelicalism as we know it. That goes in line with something you said before, this idea that religion doesn't make people bigots. People use religion to justify their bigotry. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, the same, the same two people who have the exact same faith, who read the Bible in exactly the same way, uh, can have two radically different ideas about you know what the Bible actually tells them, you know the the Westboro Baptist guys who who stand you know at the grave sites of soldiers with signs saying God hates fags are also Christian 
as much as the very comfortable um, gay or lesbian Christian who is sort of seamlessly um, reconciled his or her religious faith with his uh, or her gender identity, they're both believers in the same Christ. They both read the same scripture, but they come away with two radically opposing views of it. In in this country, as I like to remind people, you know, not, not what, 250 years ago, both slave owners and abolitionists not only used the same Bible to justify their viewpoints, they used the exact same verses to justify their viewpoints. That's the power of Scripture, that it only comes alive. It only matters when someone reads it, when someone confronts it. Scripture without interpretation, that's just words on a page. It requires an individual to come into contact with it in order for it to have any kind of meaning. And then by definition, that meaning is going to go through that person. It's going to go through the filter of that person's worldviews, that person's gender, that person's politics, that person's race, that person's uh, identity before it comes out the other side with any kind of meaning. One of the things you said that uh, that I didn't fully understand, but I was like, I'm going to get to talk to him, so I'll just ask him, <laughs> was that we've ruined God by making God human. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So, yeah, this is uh, this is the topic of of my newest book, which is, you know, the thesis of the book is that if you look at the entire history of human spirituality, going all the way back to the very birth of Homo sapiens, in fact, going further, going back to before our species even existed, what you find is basically a long, cohesive intimately linked narrative of human beings trying to make sense of the divine by implanting in God human emotions, human motivations, a human personality, even a human body, by giving God human strengths and weaknesses, human virtues and vices, by increasingly and steadily humanizing God until, of course, in the person of Jesus— God literally becomes a human being. It turns out that we are sort of evolutionarily designed to do this. It's an unconscious impulse that human beings all over the world, regardless of whether they believe in God or not, when forced to describe God in words, just unconsciously begin to describe themselves. They basically create a divine version of themselves, a superhuman being with human emotions, with human feelings, human uh, motivations, but without human limitations. Um, and indeed, you can see this not just throughout the very the the, the long history of religions, but it, there's an enormous amount of cognitive and psychological studies now that have demonstrated this phenomenon. And, you know, there's good and bad to this, right? I mean, the good is in some ways obvious. Um, you know, if you think of God, I mean, look, whatever whatever God is, whatever, however you think of God, God is utterly unhuman, right? He is wholly other. And so how do you make sense of something that by definition is beyond 
uh, the, the human capacity to understand. How do you express something that is fundamentally inexpressible? Well, you do so by humanizing that thing, by giving it a human framework. And when you do that, it helps you understand that thing more. More importantly, it helps you relate to it more. What did I say was the foundation of American evangelical Christianity, the largest spiritual movement in America? It's that it's a relationship that you have with Jesus. It's a personal relationship that you have, that Jesus, he's your buddy. He's your friend. He's someone that you can rely on. He's someone who feels and thinks and acts and wants just like you do. And so if that person is not a person but God, then it's very easy to have that kind of intimate relationship with this thing that is unknowable. But there's a flip side to it, of course, because if you're trying to understand God by humanizing God, then what you're doing is implanting upon God all of your own ideas, all of your own perceptions, your own biases and bigotries, your own virtues and vices. And so you are constructing a God who loves what you love, who hates what you hate. And in doing so, you are basically divinizing not just yourself, but your worst impulses. And that more than anything else explains why religion has been both a force for good and a force for evil. That more than anything else explains what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, how two people can go to the same scripture and come away with two completely different views of what that scripture means. That more than anything else understands why one person can say God is about love and another one can say God is about vengeance, uh, that God loves all people, but and another person can say, no, God hates gay people. They're not talking about God. They're talking about themselves, and we have very little choice in the matter. In fact, it takes an enormous amount of cognitive effort to stop doing that, to stop humanizing God and, and to think about God um, less as a divine personality and and more, um, as I like to think about God, as sort of the the creative force of the of the universe itself. So what what should we do, though? Like, how do we and – and I think that people – uh, dehumanize God using sort of scripture that talks about that uh, we are made in the image of God, right? Mm-hmm, like those sort mm-hmm. of things. Um, yeah. What are we supposed to do? What's, what's the other way to think about God? Well, start by recognizing that it's we who made God in our image, not the other way around. And, you know, look. Wait, say I, that again so people get it. Say it again so people get it. <laughs> it's we who created God in our image, not the other way around. That doesn't mean that God doesn't exist or that God is just a human creation. That may be true, but it's unprovable. But what is a fact is that it is human beings who, in trying to understand God, gave God human features, human ideals in order to better understand God. And that is a trap that we have to get away from that view of of God, whether you're a believer or not, by the way. That's the important thing to understand here. Whether you're a believer or not, we got to stop thinking about God in those kinds of of terms. You know, look, I'm I'm a pantheist. Pantheists believe that God is all and that all is God. Um, I believe that 
God is the universe, that nothing can exist that is not God. My my understanding of God as a Muslim and as a Sufi is that God is fundamentally oneness, that the very nature of God is divine unity. And so as such, that unity can never be broken, that oneness can never be compromised, which means that there can never ever be any kind of division or distinction between creator and creation, that they are one and the same. So I am God. You are God. Everything that exists is God. Um, That's, by the way, as I explain in in, in my newest book, that's what our ancient ancestors believed. That was the, the first definition, if you will, of God before there were such things as religion and hierarchies and patriarchies and priesthoods and and do's and don'ts and temples and cathedrals and all of that stuff. Um, and I guess what I'm advocating for is a return to that primal uh, view uh, of God because it transforms everything. It, it makes it makes everything different. It, it it changes the way that you deal with your fellow human beings because if your fellow human beings are God, then it keeps you from delegitimizing them, from dehumanizing them, if you will. If all of nature is God, then it keeps you from exploiting and abusing nature. It transforms morality from the cosmic realm, right? Oh, well, there's God and there's the devil and they fight over each other and that's why I do bad things to just your own responsibility, right? It's you. It's not the devil. It's just you. Um, And I think that especially in this spiritual landscape, the spiritual landscape that is soon going to be dominated by the non-affiliated, that this is a a, a more – it's a richer, it's a more meaningful, uh, it's a deeper, and I think it's a more peaceful way of thinking about God – than as just some guy who looks and acts and thinks just like you do. What do you say about um, people say that they, that God doesn't love gays, gay people? I'm gay. What do you, what do you say about uh, that? Again, what I would say is that you're just saying what you love or hate. <laughs> like you know, we we implant our own ideas on God, and so you know, it's, that's what happens. You know, we, we give our loves and hates to God and pretend that they're his loves and hates. Um, now how doesn't that lead to like a relativism though? Well, first of like, all, wh- are, when people say that they're like things that God like truly believes and we should follow those, like don't kill people. Well, look, I think that you can make an argument that there are certain broad, uh, you know, commandments that one finds not just in the Hebrew scriptures, but in the New Testament and the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata, you know, that all these scriptures, all these religions of the world are united by, uh, you know, a core set of shared values, the the uh, legitimacy of the human condition, the the idea that, that you don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, um, you know, the sanctity of life. These things are, are shared. But we also have to understand that all of these religions, all of these scriptures are culturally influenced. They are historical documents that they have a context to them, right? Look – if you're someone who devoutly believes in God, 
what kind of God do you believe in who only spoke once to one person at one time in history, right? That, that, what, what kind of God is that, right? That you have to understand that, that, you know, every one of these scriptures, no matter how God-breathed you may think that they are, were written by people who lived in specific times and places in which reflect very specific cultural and historical concerns that in many cases no longer apply. Look, I know that there are, you know, devout people who will say, well, well, look, um, you know, Leviticus says a man shall not lie with a man. There it is right in the Bible. And so if it's in the Bible, then that's all there is to it. There's nothing to talk about anymore. You know what I say to those people? Leviticus also says, demands, in fact, that you take your disobedient child to the edge of the city and stone him to death. Do you do that? And usually the answer is, well, no, no, of course I don't do that. You know, that's a that's cultural. That's something that happened, you know, that back then it was okay and it's not now. Do you see that you see how selective people are, right? <laughs> Everything is cultural. And so when someone says, no, 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 I it's not that I hate gays, it's that God hates gays. It says so in the Bible. So, you know, I have no choice. They're talking out of their asses. What they are talking to you about is what they love or hate, and they have turned God into just a divine version of themselves. And the last question is, uh, is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Uh, One piece of advice that I've gotten over the years that has always stuck with me? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got a great piece of advice very, very early in my career and it's it's the advice that I give everyone who asks me how to succeed. And that advice is just say yes. Just always say yes. Whatever anyone asks you to do, you know, any opportunity that comes your way, no matter how absurdly unqualified you are to do it, just say yes. Just say yes and figure it out. Uh of the things that I have done in my life, I have been woefully unqualified to do. I just said yes, and then just kind of figured it out. Um, So that's my advice. My advice is if if you're someone who's just getting started, who wants to do great things in the world, just say yes. Say yes to whatever anyone tells you. Just say yes and do it. There we go. Where can people find you? Can you tell us the name of your latest book and of all of your books so that people know where to get them? Sure, sure. So you can always find me at rezaaslan.com uh, or on Twitter at Reza Aslan. Um, the book that just came out that we were talking about is God, A Human History. Um, and then we also, when we were talking about Jesus, I was um, referencing uh, my previous book, Zealot. The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. So you can grab those two books. Or if you're interested in Islam, you can grab my first book, No God But God. I love it. Well, cool. This was um, this was really helpful. And I hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation. Absolutely, man. It was wonderful to talk to you. Keep up the good work. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you uh, tell your friends. Make sure you rate it on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you in D.C. on February the 18th. Yeah.